invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. This is the last word Paul is going to give us on God's relationship to Israel. And we've seen that he has not given up on Israel. Right? Last week we saw that God has not given up on ethnic Israel. He made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. And so that means that he has not utterly rejected unbelieving Jews, even though they have by and large rejected him. He has preserved a remnant. And he is even, through the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles, bringing ethnic Jews into the kingdom by provoking them to jealousy and giving the blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to the Gentiles who come to faith in the Messiah. This week, we see that he has not only left a remnant, but now he's going to do something even greater than leave a remnant for the Jews. He has a plan for them in the future. So read with me verses 25 through 36 of Romans chapter 11. Romans eleven twenty five through 36. He is still speaking to us Gentiles, us non-Jews, who tend to have a superior attitude toward Jewish people. And back in the first century, they had a superior attitude saying, well, you, reject the, you rejected the Messiah. And all the covenant promises are ours now. And God has completely abandoned Israel. And Christ is ours. He's, he's a Gentile Lord. That was the, the atmosphere among the Gentiles in Rome. But Paul contradicts this kind of thought. In verse 25, he begins, Lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth and the riches and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And amen. So in this passage, the Apostle Paul gives a final word on Israel. Not only has he kept a remnant, we see, but he's not just kept a remnant in the future, but he is going to have a plan for them. I'm not sorry, I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. He's not only kept a remnant in the present, but he's going to have a plan for them that comes into full fruition in the future. So he has a present and future plan 
for the nation of Israel, ethnic Israel. So I want to treat this passage under four headings. The mystery of God, the purpose of God, the wisdom of God, and the glory of God. Mystery, the purpose, the wisdom, and the glory of God. Let's look at that first heading, the mystery of God. The Apostle Paul says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. I want to stop right there for a minute. A mystery in the Bible is not just something mysterious and like, wow, that's kind of flowy and weird, you know? A mystery in Scripture is something that was hidden, but now has been revealed. Something that was dark and now has been brought to light. So the mystery that Paul is going to tell us refers to the Jewish nation, and it's supposed to dispel a Gentile arrogance. And so one commentator notes that the word mystery usually refers to an event in the end times that already has been determined by God. And so in that sense, it exists already in heaven, but which is now revealed to the prophet for the encouragement and correction of the people. And so Paul is giving us this mystery that already exists in heaven according to the plan of God, but now is revealed to his people. For correction, instruction, and comfort. Now we are a people dependent on revelation of God. And that is that is a fundamental tenet of the Christian faith, that we depend on God revealing truth to us. It's not discovered truth, all of it, it is revealed the truth in Scripture and decisively in Jesus Christ. And so the way we know is that God shows us these mysteries. So the first step forward towards wisdom for the Christian is to know that wisdom is not contained with me, that wisdom does not end with me. What I need to do in order to be wise is to reach beyond myself and to receive revelation, to receive information. So I am dependent. We are dependent on revelation from the Lord as Christians. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and lean not into your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. Amen? So, there are things in, in life which you're not going to understand. Why you are going, why God is allowing you to, to endure this particular struggle. There are questions you're going to have about the faith that you cannot fully understand and comprehend. And the Lord has not promised to give you every single answer to every single question you might have, though. He has promised to give you what you need, and he has told you to believe and obey. I'm reminded of um, Peter. Jesus tells Peter, Basically, that he's going to suffer a martyr's death. And then Peter points to John. He says, well, what about this man? And Jesus says, now what if I wanted him to stay alive until I come? What is that to you? You follow me. See, the Lord has revealed 
us what we need, revealed to us what we need to know, but he has not revealed us to us everything. What he requires us, from us is faith and obedience with what we do know. In Deuteronomy 29.29, the Lord says, The secret things belong to the Lord. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed to us belong to us and to our children, that we may do all the words of this law. So the things that God reveals to you, he reveals to you to, for a reason. There are mysteries that we are not aware of, and therefore there are questions that you may have. But what the Lord does is he gives you just enough, and he says, now obey and believe. That's the mark of Christian wisdom, that you do not lean on your own understanding then, but you trust in the Lord and follow him in spite of doubts, in spite of concerns and struggles. You are dependent on God's revelation. So, the mystery of God is something we're dependent on. Still, under the mystery of God, Paul gives us the mystery concerning the Jewish people. And he says in verse 25, A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, I don't know how, how much theology you studied or how, if you studied the book of Romans in, a, in an in-depth way, but this is perhaps the most debated passage in all of Romans, or maybe all in all of Paul's letters. This, verse 26, is perhaps the most debated passage. <clears throat> so the mystery is three parts here. Number one, there's a partial hardening has come upon Israel. And we know that, right? If we looked in verses 7 through 10, Paul has told us very clearly that Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. God gave them a spirit of stupor. He has blinded them. He has dulled their ears, and he has bent their backs. So he has blinded and hardened ethnic Jews at this point in history, in the first century. The next part of this revelation, this mystery, is that this partial hardening will maintain until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. That means the full number of Gentiles has come in. The third part of the mystery is that all Israel will be saved. So here's the, the core of the mystery is that God has partially hardened Israel and the stream of Gentiles is going to flow into the kingdom of God. And thereafter, all Israel will be saved. Now, the most debated part about this is what does it mean that all Israel will be saved? What does it mean that all Israel will be saved? There are three options. And this is a great lesson for us today. I want to teach you how to make an interpretive decision. All right. So I'm going to tell you the three options here. I'm going to arrive at a conclusion tentatively, and I'm going to move forward based on that conclusion, knowing that wisdom does not stop with me. All right? This, so let's, let's dig into this and see what we can find out. So the, the first option here, all Israel will be saved. What does that mean? 
The first option is that all Israel refers to spiritual Israel. And that there's a plot twist in um, surrounding who constitutes the people of God. Now, turn with me to Romans 9, verse 6 for a second. Just flip a page or two over. So when Paul says all Israel could be will be saved, a lot of people, uh, some scholars, believe that Paul is talking about spiritual Israel, both eth- ethnic Jews and Gentiles. And they'll point to chapter 9, verse 6, starting at verse 6, and they'll say, look how Paul uses Israel in this verse. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because of their his offspring. Paul is saying that there is a, an ethnic Israel by biology, but there is a spiritual Israel. So not all who are descended from Israel biologically belong to the spiritual Israel of Gentiles and Jews who have faith in Jesus Christ, right? And so many will point to that verse and say, well, see, Paul can use Israel to refer to the elect Jews and Gentiles. And even in Galatians 6.16, Paul refers to the Israel of God in in contradiction to the ethnic Israel. So Paul can use Israel to refer to Jews and Gentiles. You follow that? The problem with that view, as I see it, is the reason Paul is giving this mystery is to deflate Gentile arrogance. And so how would how would saying that all Israel, that is Jews and Gentiles, will be saved how would, that, um, how would that keep Gentiles from being wise in their own sight? That doesn't follow. It doesn't, keep, it doesn't keep Jews and Gentiles from being wise in their own sight, necessarily. Next, if you go to verse 28 and 29, you see that Paul, this presupposes that Paul has ethnic Israel in mind when he continues talking about them in verse 28 and says, as regards the gospel, they... Are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. It seems to me that Paul has the ethnic people of God in view in verse 26, and he continues that train of thought in verse 28 and 29 after quoting Old Testament passages in verses 26 and 27 that support the notion that God will save ethnic Israel. So that's option. Number one, I don't think that it refers to spiritual Israel. It refers, I believe, to ethnic Israel. The second option is that it refers to a remnant within ethnic Israel, that God will always maintain a remnant of believing Jews until the end of time. And many who hold this interpretation will point to verse 25 and say, see, the hardening is partial And this means that God is going to maintain a remnant um, of believing Jews as the fullness of Gentiles come in. And in that way, all Israel will be saved. However, again, the Old Testament citations in verses 26 and 27 are about banishing sin from Israel and preserving all Jews according to the promise of God in the Old Testament. Furthermore, all Israel 
is what's on the table here, not some of Israel, right? It's not, a, it's not some believing Jews. It's all Israel at a time will be saved. So it doesn't seem to refer to a remnant of believing Jews. Paul has in mind all Israel. That brings us to the third option. When Paul says all Israel will be saved, he's referring to a future ingathering of ethnic Jews once the full number of the Gentiles comes in. And I think this is the most plausible interpretation. The reason is because Paul says a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So until points to a time in which Israel will no longer be hardened. So when the fullness of Gentiles comes in, the hardening will be released. Secondly, the Old Testament passages, as I've said before, um, provide that biblical evidence that God is going to remove sin from Israel specifically. Third, that logical transition in verse 28, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So I believe that Paul is not talking about spiritual Israel of Jews and Gentiles, that he's not talking about a remnant that will be maintained throughout history, but that he is referring to a time, a process by which all Israel will be saved at the end of time. So there is going to be a partial hardening upon the people of Israel, the Jewish people, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And then once the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, God will remove that hardening from Israel, resulting in a massive conversion of ethnic Jews at the end of the age. That's what I believe the passage is saying. Again, Douglas Moo, a commentator, says, Wholly novel for the Jew was the idea that the inauguration of the end of the time would involve setting aside the majority of Jews while Gentiles streamed in to enjoy the blessings of salvation, and that only when that stream had been exhausted would Israel as a whole experience these blessings. So you see what he's saying? That the fullness of the Gentiles is going to come in. And when all the nations return to Christ, God will release hardening from Israel, and then they shall turn to their Messiah, and all Israel will be saved at that time, and I trust Christ will come at that time. What I think this entails, the cash value of this interpretation, is I think this entails a hope for the gospel for a takeover of the world. I believe that the gospel can and will start like a mustard seed with one person named Jesus, then branch out to 12 disciples. Then at Pentecost, thousands of people are saved. And then in the early church, 300 years until Rome is Christianized. And then fluctuation throughout the world. But slowly and surely, that mustard seed will grow. And it will grow large. And its branches will shoot out. And all the birds of the air will lodge in its branches. So I believe that this is a post-millennial hope. Who 
knows what I say when I say post-millennial? Show of hands. All right. A few people. Post-millennial hope. The, the essence of the post-millennial hope, which I really lean towards, is that things are not going to get worse necessarily. Ultimately, they could go from bad to worse here and there, but ultimately there's a great, bright, and shining hope for the gospel. And there's no reason to believe that we cannot see the whole world converted to Christ in 50 years. There's nothing in the Bible that says that can't happen. And once it does happen, Christ will come. The most quoted verse in the New Testament is Psalm 110, which says that Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. What is so interesting, furthermore, is that the Great Commission has to do with this passage here, the fullness of the Gentiles coming in. What is the Great Commission? Go and make disciples of all nations. You know what that word nations is in the Greek? Ethnos. It's the same word that Paul uses for Gentiles. Go and make disciples of all the Gentiles baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. So the great hope of the Great Commission is that the nations would return to the Lord, would turn to the Lord. And thereafter, once the fullness of the nations come in, the Jews' hardening is released, and they come in to receive their Messiah. And there is a great shining hope when the world, by and large, has received the gospel and Christ comes down. Jesus said, after all, when this gospel of the kingdom has been preached throughout all the world, then the end will come. So I have a great, right hope for the gospel. That's going, it can take over the world. Now, this again is the most difficult passage in all of Paul. And I just gave you a rough and ready interpretation of it. But what, what I want you to do as you read your Bibles, as you study the scriptures, as you try to understand theology, is understand that making an interpretive decision does not require you to be 100% certain about something. Um, I was telling Gary, I think it was Gary yesterday, the way you make a decision is think, you, think about having a Supreme Court in your head. You have nine votes. How many votes are you going to give to this view and how many votes you're going to give to the other view? And then having thought about the view that's most plausible, you move forward with confidence, though understanding that wisdom does not end with you. So I have like a five to four on this passage where I think it's five votes for the interpretation I just gave you and four votes for probably maybe another interpretation. But I'm going to move forward because I think this is the most plausible interpretation of the passage. If you believe just as strongly about your interpretation on end times matters as you do about the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, then there's an imbalance in your theology. We have to keep the main things the main things, right? And we're unified around the main things, and we're charitable around the peripheral matters. 
but I want to have good, rich theological conversation. And I want, to, I, want to, I want to know more. If you can teach me something, I want to know about that. I want to get into good theology. But understand that that, that, that does not require me to have 100% dogmatic certainty about these secondary issues. What you need to have and cling to with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he had died an atoning death for your sin, that he rose physically from the grave, that he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and that he is coming back to judge the wicked and the dead, the living and the dead, rather. So that's much more clear than these passages. So I just say that to, to show you that honest, what, we're, what God requires of us, of us is honesty and a submission to his word. Not arriving at a dogmatic conclusion about something for which we really aren't 100% sure about. Be honest about your interpretation and then seek a better understanding on these things. But I'm going to conclude for this passage is that the mystery is what I said. The mystery is that God has set a partial hardening on Jewish people. And even today, you don't you see a hardening on Jewish people. And that once the stream of the Gentiles comes in, there will be a great ingathering of the Jews to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And they will look on him whom they have pierced, and then they shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so we're going to continue this passage in light of that interpretation. That's the mystery of God that Paul talks about. What about the purpose of God? The purpose of God, next heading, is God's main agenda. God's main agenda in the world is to show humans mercy. He says in verse 30, For just as you were at one time, you Gentiles, were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so too have you now been have they now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So God has taken even the disobedience of Jews, like we've been talking about the past few weeks, and he grant and through it, he has granted mercy to the Gentiles. And now he is taking the mercy given to the Gentiles and he is using it to drive the Jewish people to jealousy now and in the future. And he's using that jealousy as an evangelistic tool to bring people to their Messiah. The ultimate goal for God is to grant mercy on people. That's verse 31. Verse 32, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. So this is the character of God. God is going to come with wrath in the end. He is going to come with judgment. He is dangerous, but his aim, his agenda is to show mercy on mankind. And he has done so through Jesus Christ. And he is even delaying judgment. 
so that the fullness of Gentiles might come in and that the Jewish people might turn to their Savior. We have a merciful God, a a wonderful and merciful Savior. Psalm 103, the psalmist says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So we have a God of mercy. And mercy, by definition, is being delivered from that which you deserve. So, in order to receive mercy, one must admit, must must acknowledge that they need mercy, that they are in need of something. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That is not only a declaration, but an invitation. Are you a righteous person on your own? Are you self-righteous? Or are you a sinner? It's the sinner upon whom God will look. So with your various struggles, with your various sins and ailments that come from a corrupted nature, understand that God seeks to show you mercy. And all you need to do is cast yourself on the loving mercy of God and he will sustain you uphold you, hold you fast, and see you safely into his heavenly kingdom. Do not ever think, congregation, that you are too far from God to receive mercy. It is God's agenda to show mercy, and he has consigned you to disobedience in order that he might show you mercy. Mercy by the way, is not for those who need it. It's not for those who need it. It's for those who want it. If you want mercy, it's there for you. You see, everyone needs mercy, but the ones who will receive it are those who want mercy from the Lord. So that's the purpose of God. So the mystery of God is that the fullness of the Gentiles are going to come in. I have a great end times hope for the evangelization of the world. The the purpose of God is to show mercy on Jews, Gentiles, and anyone who wants it. The wisdom of God is the next heading. The wisdom of God refers to God's ability to fold disobedience into his providence and causality. Is to take man's hard heart, their sin, and their wickedness, and to wrap it up into his plan so that he takes evil and he is able to translate it into good by his sovereign hand. Paul says, and he extols God for this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. And how inscrutable are his ways. His plans are infinitely complex and inscrutable. That means beyond finding out. And he works in your lives in ways that you would never understand. You could not see the end from the beginning. You cannot see the end from the beginning as a Christian or as a human. What you must do is trust in the Lord, his wise and infinite plan, 
that it is working together for good. Remember Romans 8, 28? It is working together for your good, for those who love the Lord. I, you ever see on, on YouTube these great painters? They'll be on the streets, and they have an easel that turns upside down and, and over inside. So they're painting these, these paintings for people, and they'll splash some paint on it. And it'll just look nonsensical. And they'll be going at this for 10, 15 minutes, painting this. And it, looks, it doesn't look coherent at first. It doesn't come together. The colors are everywhere. And what they do, they finish the painting, and then they turn it upside down. And yet you see it's a picture of a lion or a man fishing on a lake or something. And everything makes sense once the picture is turned right side up. But they were painting it upside down the whole time. I want to submit to you that that is something like the Christian life. You're not going to see the perfect picture. What you're required to do is trust his plan in the end. I was reading a book called The Unhurried Life by Alan Fadling, and he had another painting illustration. He said, if God is painting a picture, if your life were a painting, and he was painting a man, in a picture with a great surrounding of mountains, but the man in the picture kept getting up and walking around, it would, it would destroy the picture. And God would keep having to constantly put the man back into his place and repaint the picture and, and, and reorient the man in the picture. So what, what we're required to do is to wait on the Lord, to trust the Lord, to not try to make things happen right away. And remember Abraham? Abraham had the promise from God to have a son, it wasn't happening for a long time. So what did he do? He went to Hagar and said, maybe this is how God, maybe this is how God will answer my promise, his promise to me. But God had a better plan. It was always through Sarah. It was always through his seed that Isaac would come. So I want to encourage you to, to come and submit under the wisdom of God. He does have a plan for your life, but what, what you must do to cooperate with that plan is to humbly obey and submit to his good guidance, understanding that he will never let you go, and he has not let you go. He's going to turn that painting upside down at some point, now or later, for his good, for your good and his glory. And remember, when I say good, I mean eternal good. I don't necessarily mean health and wealth. I mean eternal good. In his book, um, what's that one? With Wormwood, C.S. Lewis, the uh, screw tape letters. I, I, I think if you, if you can get a, your hands on a book, a great read, get screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis because it is such a soul-searching book. So the idea of screw tape letters is that there is a chief demon writing to his protege demon on how to turn this man into a son of the devil. And the chief demon's advice to his protege demon is this. He says, do not be deceived, Warren Wood. Our cause is never more in jeopardy than when a human no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks around upon a universe 
in which they have every in which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why they have been forsaken and still obeys that is when the enemy's cause is destroyed when somebody has no reason when God seems to be not there, not present. When, the, when someone looks upon the universe and every trace of God seems to have vanished. And, at, and this person asks why they have been forsaken and they still obey. That is when the enemy is destroyed. So you may not see the painting. You may not see the end from the beginning. But still obey and trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not into your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. By the way, and that's, this is how you glorify God. I've said this before, but you glorify God in the desert. When it's hard, when it's difficult, when, you're, when your reasons are gone. And you, yet you still obey and you still follow the Lord, humbly submitting to his word. And that's when the Lord might look down and say, have you seen my servant, how faithful and upright she is? Have you seen my servant, Matt, how faithful and upright he is? That is when the Lord is glorified. When you submit to him and trust in him in the darkness and in the desert. That brings us to the fourth heading then. That was the wisdom of God. The fourth heading is the glory of God. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? Do you know the mind of the Lord? Anytime you decide to rail against God, anytime that desire rises up within you, where were you when he set the foundations of the earth? Have you been the Lord's counselor? Have you given God a gift so that he owes you something? No. The conclusion is that from him and through him and to him belong all things. To him be glory forever and ever. So the glory of God, hear me, the glory of God means weightiness. It means heaviness. It means gravity and majesty. That belongs to the Lord. The glory belongs to the Lord. The weightiness, the reverence, the respect, the honor belongs to the Lord. One of my favorite sentences of all time was spoken by John Piper when he said that God is not the means to achieve the goals you had before you were a Christian. He is the goal. He is the goal. And it's the mature Christian, as he or she grows more and more, will understand and will want and cherish and have a heart zealous for the glory of God in the world, the weightiness of his name. For from him come all things. He is the source of all good things. All good gifts come from the Father. Through him, that means he is your strength, your help, your provider. And to him are all things. 
That means all things belong to him, whether thrones or dominions or powers or principalities, all things serve the purpose of glorifying him. He is the source, the means, and the goal of existence, and you exist to glorify him, to ascribe weightiness to his name. By the way, that's why for the past month or so we've been doing this music before worship. I'd really like everyone to get on board with that. What we're trying to do is set a reverential tone for the worship service. And we're trying to not only silence our heart, but bring ourselves into an atmosphere of reverence for the Lord. We want to lift him up, but we also want to, you know, Ecclesiastes says, guard your heart before you enter the house of the Lord. So what we want to do is come to the house of the Lord with joy, but also with an attitude of weightiness and reverence for him. To ascribe weight to his name. And when we sing, after having prepared our hearts, then we'll sing with a fuller heart. So here it is in summary then. The mystery of God is that, well, first of all, we're dependent on mysteries. But the core of the mystery, I think, is the evangelization of the whole world. That the fullness of Gentiles will come in. And after that, the hardening will be released from God's Jewish people, whom he, to whom he made promises. And in that way, all Israel and indeed all the earth will be saved. And the knowledge of God and the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. I have a great, shining, bright hope. So do not let, I encourage you to not let current politics or world events demoralize you. We have a God who is stronger than that. And we have good reasons in Scripture to believe that the gospel is going to take over. It will grow like a mustard seed and take over the earth. And the kingdom of God will come as the gospel advances. Secondly, after the mystery of God, understand that the purpose of God is to show mercy. And mercy is not just for those who need it, it's for those who want it, for those who admit their need, their fault, and cry out to God. And mercy is always available. Understand that the wisdom of God, also too, cannot be fully perceived. His ways are inscrutable. And you cannot see what the Lord is doing in your life, in a nation, or in the world by looking at the events of the present. It's by trusting in the promises of the future that we come under submission to the Lord. And understand, lastly, that all things are for the glory of God. It's from the Lord, through the Lord, and to the Lord belong all things. And so as a Christian, you can ascribe weightiness to his name through how you live, through how you speak to other people, through how you represent Christ, the reputation you give to his name, and by speaking to others the good news of Christ, because how are they going to hear unless somebody preaches? Amen? So that concludes a long 
discussion on God's relationship to Israel. Our conclusion then is that he has not only not given up on them and left a remnant, but he has a plan for them in the future. And just as he has a plan for Gentiles in the future to bring everyone into the kingdom who calls on the name of the Lord. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only wise God, be glory and majesty and power and dominion before all time, now and forevermore. Amen and amen. If anyone would like special prayer, I would love to pray with you. God bless you.